following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Before I start in today, um, I just wonder how many are here, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, I just want to talk for a minute. I wonder how many here today just have not done well this week, (laughs) who have not obeyed the first and second commandment. I feel like I met with my, <clears throat> my uh, life group guys this week, and I said, I'm a failure. Like, I, I didn't do it. I didn't love the Lord God with my heart, soul, and mind. I love myself. I said, are we being disciples? Are we doing what you've asked us, Lord? <laughs> you know. And it's very easy to be completely um, discouraged. And I recognize that I'm not the only one that is like this um, because my friends and my family struggle with the same thing. And we struggle to think oftentimes that, man, okay, next week, Monday's coming, Sunday's coming, I'm going to kind of reboot, I'm going to do my best next Sunday, I'm going to read my Bible more, or I'm going to be kinder to those around me, or I'm going to love, or I'm going to sacrifice more, I'm going to try to deny myself more. And we forget the gospel. That which recognizes who we are and says, yes, you can't do it, but I can. Remember that he's the one that rescued us. We didn't rescue ourselves. So I come to you this morning as a fellow in need of rescuing by Jesus Christ. I told Stacy we met earlier on this week, and I'm reading for our family devotions, we do the the Jesus Storybook Bible, and over and over and over again, we see that God is the one that's the rescuer. That helps my children remember, remember, helps me to remember that I'm not trying to be more like David or more like Paul or more like this person or that person, but I'm trying to love and know and submit to Jesus Christ, my King, who has rescued me. So if you had a great week, remember it's God's grace. If you had a terrible week, remember it's God's grace. He is what brings us together this morning, and this is something I've been thinking about, and I, had a ch- I was supposed to speak last week, and then the, the lights over, and we changed it a little bit, and uh, it's something I thought through all week, and it just kept coming back to me. And even as I stand here to try to deliver God's word and to say, look what God has said to us, recognize that I am just a man, just a person, just like you, in the fact that we are image bearers of Jesus Christ, of God, and we, we are called to be his church, called to be more like Jesus Christ, called to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So it's with that, Let's get into this passage. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Mark 10. Um, We'll be in verse 46 or 52. So if you don't don't have your own Bible, the Bible's in front of you, those Bibles that are underneath the seats. It's page 847, if you have that Bible in front of you. I'm very excited about this passage. Um, Excited enough that it distracts me, like, from working sometimes because someone comes along and say, how are you doing? And I can't, like, help it. Like, we were trying to, we were working on Shar Waters' fence last week, and um, poor John asked how things were going, and I like unloaded them for like 20 minutes. Like all the, the progress on the fence stopped. So I was like, stood with the digging bar, and we were talking about it. He's got the nail gun in his hand, and he's like, I'm dying here. So he eventually puts it down. You know, I, and I just unloaded about this passage because it was just so cool. It wraps up what we've been doing for a, lot, for a long time now. Um, by the way, men, thanks for doing that for Shar, uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus. And I know there's other things throughout the body that are going on as we serve one another. Um, you were a picture of the hands and feet of Jesus to that family 
And we want to do that for one another. So um, thank you guys. Um, there's enough excitement about this that I, uh, if, if I were to ever have another um, male child, I might name him Bart. Not because, and some of my theological friends would be like, oh, Carl Bart, I see. No, 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 no. Or, and the rest of America is like, no, the Simpsons. So I probably will never do this, but of course I'm referring to Bartimaeus, the guy that's in our passage here today. So um, I, I, let's start here. Let's, if you have your Bibles, let's read verse 46 to begin. We'll go through the end of the chapter. And, they, and hopefully you'll see why in the world I'd make such a silly comment after we see this story and see what this man, what happens to him, what he does and what happens to him. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped him and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Let's pray. Lord, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and care. For giving us, most importantly, yourself. For giving us new life in you because of your death, burial, and resurrection. Now you're on high with the Father. Thank you for your spirit who is amongst us to work in us. Thank you for your sovereign plan. Thank you for the church that you've placed around us. Thank you for Greg praying this morning, Father. Thank you for the growth that's happening in community groups. Thank you for fences being put up in your name. Thank you for the things that you are doing here at Hampton Roads, that you're opening eyes. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your grace. And I know there's some here this morning that don't know what I'm talking about. And they have not experienced the grace and the goodness of Jesus. So this morning, God, I ask that you would give us sight. I ask that you would do what only you can do. You are the only wise God, and there is no one like you. We cry out to you this morning to remove what we cannot remove. Only you can rescue us from our sin and death and blindness. Only you can make us see clearly. Show us yourself this morning and cause our hearts to respond in obedience. Make us true disciples. May we follow hard after you. May we be willing to give up all that we have for the sake of following you. And Lord, may you empower us to do that today. Amen. So before we start walking through this passage, um, it's really important for us to remember where we've been the, the past few months. Um, as Stacy and I approached this sermon, actually, I, it's like he said, no, I want you to do it. I said, well, it's like a capstone. It's like this, the end of this big st- section. It's awesome. I want you to, you know, you nail it. He's like, no, you started it back in 822. I want you to finish it out. So I was... I was very thankful he allowed me to do this, and uh, it's important for us to kind of think about this whole time together then. So if you remember way back, we started in chapter 822, a new section here. 
if you remember, we kind of said it's like on the way to Jerusalem. It's uh, discipleship kind of taught on and how it's lived out and ex- explained and the story surrounding it, what it means to be a disciple and the kingdom overall. It even it kind of, uh, as you be from the beginning to the end, the two stories are stories of what? Blindness. It wasn't a tricky question, you know, yeah. It was a story, a story of blindness. So it's important for us today, I think, to start at the beginning, kind of give us an idea, because some people, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You weren't here before. So let's go back to 822. You don't have to go there in the Bible. So I'm going to do a kind of an overview, an outline to tell you what happened and how it brings us to today and why that's really important. We don't want to take a text and isolate it. That's not going to be helpful for us. We can kind of make it do whatever we want to if we're going to do that. So don't ever isolate a text and pull it out and use that as by itself. Remember that it's part of the grander story, both in this case, Mark, but also in the New Testament, also in all of Scripture. So remember it's part of that. We can't rip it out of context. So let's go back. So the first one is a story of a blind man back in 822. Do you remember this? He's healed in stages. He starts and, and Jesus heals him. And he says, can you see? And he says, yeah, but like I see men as, as trees walking. Remember this? And then, and then, and then he kills him again. And he says, can you see now? And yes, clearly. And now he sees him. The second story on the heels of this is that he is starting to show, and he's highlighting the blindness. Beginning, let me pack up. He's highlighting the blindness of somebody else, not just this man, but he's highlighting via story the blindness of the disciples, those who are actually following him. We see, though, that they begin to see the next story, right in the heels is 8, 27 through 30. Disciples begin to see. Peter says what? Do you remember his great declaration? You are the, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. But he doesn't get it all right. He's starting to see, though. Because after that, Jesus predicts what? His, his death. Okay, we're tracking. Good. So, like, there's three times he's going to do this in this section. He's going to predict his death once. Again, twice, and then he's going to do it one more time before he gets to the end here. What happens after those times? Remember this? What do the, the disciples do something? They don't do well. They fail. This is called, Stacy's called it the, the failure cycle. We see them seemingly get it, and then they just fail. So this first time Jesus predicts his death in 831, right on the heels of that, the first failure cycle, Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about his death. No, 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 you got it wrong, Jesus. Remember this? So he's not quite seen clearly. Uh, Jesus' teaching then follows it up. He tells them what it means to be a disciple, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow me. Jesus helps a few to see him in the transfiguration. Remember this? We dealt with the transfiguration. And he starts to show them who he really is, that he is the Messiah. They're not wrong. They're right. He is the Messiah. He just shows a few of them. Remember this? And they come down from this mountain. The next story, do you remember this? They, they, can't, they can't cast this demon out. The disciples, they can't, they can't get it out. And they ask Jesus what to do, and, and he's the one that eventually casts it out. And he says his teaching on this is that only through prayer can this demon be cast out in response to you know, their inability. Here we see, if you remember this also, this desperate cry and this teaching for, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus teaching again. The second prediction of his death, in 9.30 through 32, he tells them about his death again. What falls on the heel of that? Another failure cycle. These disciples, again, we're starting to get a picture of, you get this like, picture of blindness. They're not quite getting it. His followers are supposed to be the best at being Jesus followers, Christians. But they're blind. They're struggling with this. 
on the heels of, his, of 932 is 933 through 34, which is disciples arguing about who's the greatest, fighting about it. I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, I'm not. You know, well, he's got a lot of disciple points. You know, whatever. They're, they're fighting about this, this silliness, and it's a failure. On the heels of this, the next story moving on, Jesus teaches about rank and position. Very fitting, as they have just been talking about who's the greatest. So he starts talking about the least of these. He starts talking about, and then, he, and then we go through different stories. So th- see, this is an inside the least of these, beginning with children. Remember, he says, suffer not the little children to come to me. Bring them. I want them. In their eyes, they're the least of these. They're just these kids. They have no status. They have no nothing. Get them away. They're annoying us. 9.35, he says, suffer them not. Bring them to me. In 9.38 through 50, Christians that are not on the disciples' team. Do you remember this? Like they say, hey, we saw somebody casting somebody out in your name, but they weren't following us. Notice that. Notice, like us. Not Jesus. They weren't following us. Disciples are missing the idea of who's the least of who's the greatest in like the ranking. They're not getting it. They're thinking if they follow us, that's the way that they're supposed to do it. And if they're not, Jesus, let's, that's bad, right? And he goes, no, if they're doing it in my name, they can't be against the kingdom. So he's un- helping them understand that that's doesn't, the rank does not matter in the kingdom in, that, in the way that it matters to the world. The next one is women. We talked about this for a while. We talked about, we went back and discussed uh, divorce. Women are being abused in this society. They're being cast off for reasons that whatever the man really wants to do, he can cast her off. Jesus basically says, no, women are of value. You can't cast them off or you're also an adulterer. And then lastly, he goes back to children again. Remember this happens? They, be, they, they bring children to him. And what do the disciples do? They rebuke them. They say, get them out of here. Man, disciples, didn't you read 9.35 when you just said, suffer not little children to come to me? Like, bring them on. Don't rebuke them. Don't rebuke them. And they rebuke them. So we see those as the least of these. Then, last week, not last week, the week before, Stacy hit the rich young ruler. We discussed the rich young ruler, the one who seemingly should have it all together. And he does. He has riches. He's a ruler. He's young, so he must have done it. He must have done it right and fast. And he's also very righteous. He's a good guy. Like, I, like we think of, I don't know, I grew up in Sunday school and thinking like the rich young ruler was the bad, greedy guy because he like wouldn't walk away from his stuff. But he does, he obeys God and he's doing the right things. And, in the, and probably and most likely in the disciples' eyes, he's one of the best of these, the opposite of the least of these, right? He's just talked about children, women, people that aren't following on the disciples' team. And now he talks about this guy, this, this rich young ruler who should have it all together, and Jesus says, did you do this, do this? Yeah, I've done this from my youth. Oh, yeah. At the end of the story, he asks him, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and follow me. What's that command all about? Discipleship. Follow me. But the rich young ruler, sad, and knowing that he doesn't believe that way, keeps his stuff and walks away. And he doesn't follow him. Jesus then predicts his death again. Um, there's a failure cycle again. Who is it? The, the, the J and the J that asked to be at Jesus' right hand. James and John. Right? Stacy just discussed this. Maybe there's like a familial relationship most likely, so they think that they deserve it. But they're like, hey, can we be on your right and your left hand? And he goes through and <laughs> points out their failure and their misunderstanding that it's not his to give. He's the Messiah. <laughs> 
Jesus' teaching uh, then after that is on being first and being last and what it should be like. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And then he makes this incredible statement that he has fulfilled already. I came not to be served, but to serve. That was my idea. That's what I was supposed to do from the beginning. I didn't come to be lauded and praised and fanned and given grapes to. Like I, I was here to serve others. And he's proved it over and over and over again. And now we're at 10, 46, or 52. It is a story of a blind man. Do you see the bookends here? Do you see literally what he's trying to do? He's, he started with blindness. He's going to end it with blindness. He's going to help us remind that they are not getting it. And we also are not different than them. Remember that. We are not better than them. They had Jesus in the flesh right there, and they didn't get it. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're not blind. You and I need Jesus. We need him so badly. It would be foolish to say something like this, that we're not blind. So let's enter this story. Um, so by this time, you already know that we're not just like another story, a Jesus, Jesus story that's like to, to prove the fact that Jesus is really powerful. Like, oh, he can heal the blind. Great. What do we learn from this story? He's powerful. He can heal the blind. Well, that's great. But he can do all kinds of stuff like that. That's not the point of this story. So what is the point of this story? Let's look at the disciples for a minute. Look at their continued failures. We just talked about this. And look at Jesus' continued corrective teaching. And Jesus is so gentle. He continues with these guys. They've messed it up over and over and over again. And he continues to love them, continues to bring them along. And he continues to correct them, to say, no, you're wrong. Let me bring you along and show you what's the truth. Let me try to remove your blindness and help you to see. Actually, this story is very different from the first one, though. It's not the same story. Very different. Um, it is used to bookend the section like we talked about, but is also used to further teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Look how the story flows compared to the first one. So let me kind of um, discuss this for a minute. 8.22 through 26. Excuse me. The connection between the blind man and Jesus, like actually meeting together, takes one verse to talk about. 22. Just getting together, they bring him to him, he says, you know, and starts to start the process. The healing process, however, is 23 through 25. So it's three full verses about the healing process. You know, can you see? Let me put more stuff. Let me make this happen. The healing process is very long. He's trying to point towards something. He's talking about that process of removing the blindness from this man. And then the actual response is one verse. But now, let's, so think about that for a minute. Think about that first act. Now let's move to this story. Blind Bartimaeus. When does he actually get to talk to Jesus in the story? It's not until, not until verse 52. 50, like he's connecting with him all the way from 46 all the way down to 51. This is important. I know it sounds like I'm just talking about words and how many verses here. That's not. It's important because they're spending a lot of time up front telling you the connection between this guy, this blind man, and Jesus. It wasn't, it could have been, he could have taken this whole story and said, and Bartimaeus saw Jesus and said this, and then he said this. And that was it. And he was, he was healed. If we do that, though, we're missing the point of the story. Mark did not add stuff for no reason. He's putting this big chunk up front because it's important. He wants us to understand Bartimaeus. He wants us to understand his connection to Jesus. So let's do that. The healing process in there is only the first half of 52. If you look at it on your Bible, 52 is the only place he gets healed. Boom. Your, your faith has made you well. And then the second half is just a response to it. So we're going to spend some time on this first three-quarters of this story and really understand it well. 
The blindness and how it is dealt with is seemingly the most important part of the story in, uh, in the first story. But in this story, Mark gives us, he says, he gives us a lot of attention and he spends six verses telling us how the blind man finally gets to meet him. The healing process only takes a half verse, like I said before, but let's walk through this. And they came to Jericho. And he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Let's set the stage. Where is the, does anyone remember where the first, if you look in 822, where is the first uh, blindness healed? Where, where are we at? Do you remember? What is it? Bethsaida. Where is Bethsaida? I want you to think in, and Stacy's shown this map and I should have brought it up, but there's two main bodies of water here. Where is Bethsaida? It's at the top. All right, so some of you might remember some of this, and I'll just kind of walk it through. Um, we have, so Bethsaida is way up here. It's north of the Sea of Galilee, which is the top. And where is the healing taking place now? Jericho. Where's Jericho? Does anyone know that? This one no one knows yet, but do you know? Anyone know her? It's down. Yes, we're moving down. We're actually going to be on the north side of the Dead Sea, which is the larger body. Connecting there, if you know a little geography, we're talking about the Jordan connects the two. So you have the Sea of Galilee, you have the Dead Sea. They've moved from above the Sea of Galilee, moved down, moved down. Now they're in Jericho. Right here, do you know where they are compared to Jerusalem? They're on the doorstep. They're 18 miles out. They're a very short trip compared to where they've been going so far to get to the place they've been going all along. Why is that important? Because that's the place of his death. This is the way of discipleship. This is the way to the cross. What he's told them from the beginning, this is where they're going. It's important because he's getting closer and closer and closer. He's not quite there again. But where is Bartimaeus? He is, a very interesting literary piece here, along the roadside, along the way. That's what a disciple's supposed to be. Notice that Mark has gone to some trouble to not just give us his name, Bartimaeus, but then also, look at this, he has also included his father's name, Timaeus, so we understand like Bar-Jonah, Bar, you know, whatever, Bar-Timaeus, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. But for some reason, Mark is even taking the time to step back and say, the son of Timaeus. Then he also tells us his profession, he's a beggar. He describes him, he's blind, and he gives us his place of profession along the roadside. That's where he sits. Mark is given one of, get this, one of the least of these, great honor, just in his wording, just in giving his name, his occupation, all the things that are describing him. He has given him, one of the least of these, dignity. We can see from 48 that this will not, excuse me, that this was not the type of blind man that we encountered in 822. If you remember, people brought the blind man in 22 to Jesus. Remember this? But in this one, we're going to find out that the, the, the audience is not happy with this blind man. They don't, they're like suppressing him, like you need to shut up, like you're really annoying us. So this one instead is, is much different. He says in, in verse 47, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, I want to stop for a minute. If, if it's helpful to close your eyes, it's fine. If not, I want you to think about this. I want you to Understand who this person is. You are blind. You cannot see the world around you. We have no idea how long. It could have been since birth. It could have been recent. But he cannot see anything around him. Your blindness, get this, has decided your class. 
you're a beggar. You have nothing. You depend on everyone. You have nothing. You depend on them to feed you. You depend on them to protect you. You, protect, you, you depend on them to give whatever they have the best they can with their leftovers. That's your life. You have no hope of ever living the rest of your life the way the world does. Your ears are the closest thing that you have to eyes. You use those babies the best you possibly can. And with those ears, you hear everything. You have heard about Jesus of Nazareth. You have heard that he makes the deaf hear and the blind to see. You have heard that he teaches with authority. You have heard that maybe he's even the Messiah. And you hear that he is coming down your street, your roadside, the where, where you sit for your life. Do you get this? You got one shot at this. You got one shot. Don't give it up. Don't miss this opportunity. And Bartimaeus gets it. Because he's been blind his whole life. He's got nothing. He's on the ground doing nothing. He is, he's at the mercy of everyone. He is one of the least of these. If he passes by, you don't get another shot at it. You don't have the eyes to go search after him and follow after him. If he is who he says he is, this is your ticket. The only way that you can do this. So you're desperate. What do you do? You scream. You have no friends. You have no one taking care of you. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You're screaming. You got, he's got to hear you. You have no other way out. You can't connect. You can't like do it like by, by like card or like, or like, hey, could you introduce me? You have no chance. You are screaming. The people around you are saying, hey, shut up. Shut up. He's here. He's important. Leave him alone. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's desperate, and he gets it. This is not going unnoticed, like I said. Verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. You can hear they're angry. Be silent. Shut up. But he cried out all the more, like it was like his button to make him go higher. And I won't be any louder because I know people are weirded out by that. But <laughs> son of David, have mercy on me. He's crying out. He recognized his utter blindness without Jesus. This man believes. If you don't get that already, he believes that Jesus can do something about it. And it has driven him to do something about it. He is evidencing faith by crying out, regardless of what people, get this, what people may think of him. Think about all the rest of the stories behind this. What people think about you is very important. Think about the rich and ruler. And finally, it has reached the ears of Jesus. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's, he's calling you. And uh, as Jesus is moving up and down the streets, he stops and he does this. Remember, remember we just talked about, he came not to be served, but to serve. An annoyance like, like that. I, I know we don't really have beggars. I was listening to something on the radio the other day talking about disabled people and how they live very much a life of poverty many times because they sit and they, they can't get a better job or whatever. But to, uh, they have it much better, people that live on disability now, compared to what this guy, this guy has nothing. He really has nothing. He doesn't have an air-conditioned house to live in and he's just sad that he has to do puzzles all day. Like he, he has nothing and he either begs or he doesn't eat. So ironically, Jesus uses the same people who are telling Bartimaeus to be quiet 
he now uses them to say, hey, come. The Messiah's calling, Jesus is calling you. And unlike the rich young ruler, Bartimaeus responds by shedding all that he has. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. We already saw him evidence faith by crying out regardless of what people thought, but now we see him cast off his only worldly possession. Now, I get it. People are like, who cares? It's just a cloak. Well, that's all he had. Most likely, that's what he used every day in front of him to gather funds that people would be gracious enough to throw him a few bucks here and there. That's all he had. And at nighttime, that was what kept him warm. That's all he had. Most likely. Now, of course, we don't have a true record of that, but that's most likely any beggar. That's what they have. They sleep in the street. They live off whatever is thrown into the cloak. They wrap the cloak back up for their blanket at night. He casts it off. A weird detail that Mark includes, right? Like, why? Well, think about the contrast, though. He's not even asked, and he throws off what he has because he realizes the great treasure of knowing and meeting Jesus. Now we are seeing... He can cast this off. That cloak, again, was extremely important. It may do us some good to think about this contrast, again, of the rich young ruler who had everything. It proved too much to be for the, for the young ruler. For, but for this one, for this guy, you know, no wonder Jesus said in 1023 how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler was not willing to give up all that he had to follow Jesus. But Bartimaeus, he voluntarily leaves his possessions behind. He gets it. He's like, this is all going to burn. I don't care. I'm going to meet Jesus. In fact, he throws it off. And like a gazelle, he bounces or springs and comes to Jesus. This is important language. It sounds silly, but it's important. Like that's, that's the excitement and that's the vigor and the, like, the sincerity he has about getting to this person, Jesus. Verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So Jesus' question seems so ridiculous, really. Like, just if you're too close, all right? Seems so close. Like, like, what do you mean, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) This guy's blind, Jesus. Heal him, please. Like, let him have his sight back. Like, don't you get it? That's what we're here about. He's a blind beggar. Back up a little bit. Have you ever heard this question before? The question he says is, what do you want me to do for you? Someone else asked this question. Actually, two guys, J and J. Actually, he asked it to them, excuse me. Verse 35 and 36, if you have your Bible. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus has asked this to somebody else. He's just asked his disciples the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? Maybe, just maybe, we're supposed to see that. Maybe the response is really important from what James and John said to what Bartimaeus says. Clue in. Let's get this. Maybe this is a setup that teaches us something about true discipleship and where the disciples are versus where they are supposed to be. Bartimaeus answers with the address, Rabbi. This shouldn't go unnoticed also. Now, you're thinking, oh, rabbi, I mean, yeah, everyone called everyone to teach your rabbi. But in the book of Mark, this is only used four times. And if I can spoil, the only people that use this are the disciples. 
No one else uses this term except Bartimaeus. He calls him rabbi. He recognizes who he is. This is in Mark 9, 5. If you want, I'm not going to take you back. Mark, Mark 9, 5, Mark 10, 51, Mark 11, 21, and Mark 14, 45. These are the four places that this is talked about. Rabbi is used. But again, they're all in the context of discipleship. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Straightforward, he wants to see. That's it. I'll give you the straightforward answer. I want to see again. Let me recover my sight. He's not looking for position or power or recognition of his goodness or of his, like, or anything or money. He's not looking for any of this stuff. He just wants to see. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. Get this, and followed him on the way. He didn't go back leaping and praising God and telling those around the city, which is a fine response, right? Mark is doing something here. Don't miss this. He is, he is following him on the way. Those are important terms. He is being a disciple. So the phrase, the phrase that's used here, uh, Jesus is going, <laughs> the phrase is also used, if you remember this, that the go your, go your way, your faith has made you well. He's using this back in Mark 5, 34. Do you remember this story? This is the, the woman that Jesus has made well. Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, and the lady with the issue of blood comes through the crowd, remember, and she touches her cloak, his cloak, excuse me, and, it, and uh, he pursue, he, she pursues him up to that, um, and Jesus comes around, and of course, that's, that's funny, he's like, who touched me? And the crowd's just pressing him, but like, the idea here is that she says, you know, I need you, and he commends her, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, and he heals her. Both the woman with the issue of blood and Bartimaeus believe that Jesus is their only hope. And they will take very deliberate steps of faith, mind you, to follow him. Bartimaeus immediately recovers his sight and does what? He follows him on the way. Mark ends his section very neatly. He's wrapped it up. He started with blindness. He's finished with blindness. He's wrapping up the stories that have gone before about the least of these. And he's talking now about one of the main, main least of these who acts the right way. And he gets it. It's a perfect way to end the story and to wrap up the larger section on discipleship. So Bartimaeus represents, if I, if, if I may, a picture of a true disciple. I want us to kind of think about that. That he has evidenced faith. That he has done the things he's supposed to. He has cast off this. And let me kind of explain it. He is one of the least of these already. He is completely dependent on those around him. And he is servant or a slave of all. He is a beggar. He recognizes Jesus' uniqueness. He both has called him son of David and he uses disciple terms of rabbi. He has, persistently, he has persistently pursued Jesus. He recognizes his need and so he cries out for mercy. He leaves his worldly possessions behind. And ironically, Bartimaeus, a poor blind beggar, sees much better than their rich young ruler ever did. The rich young ruler who couldn't give up his possessions to follow Jesus, and he doesn't follow Jesus. However, Bartimaeus believes. Um, and lastly, Mark concludes the story by telling us that he followed him on the way. Jesus is, one, is on the way to the cross, and Bartimaeus becomes a disciple and follows him. He's on the way, and we know that, the larger picture where he's going. He's going to the cross. He's following him there.
This isn't just a story to feel good about and bolster the evidence that you might have that Jesus was a great person and was able to do these things and, and he, was, he was definitely God because he made the blind see. In the first blindness story, I realized that I was the man being healed and now I realize that I want to be this blind man. I want to be Bartimaeus who cries out for mercy, who takes his worldly possessions off and runs to Jesus. He recognizes his emptiness, his nothingness, and his need for the Savior, the one who can make it right. I need to be, we need to be this blind man. This is called, and this is a call, excuse me, to discipleship. Guys, like, this is who we are supposed to be. He is calling us to follow after him. He is calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. It's that simple. What, like the rich young ruler, do you hold on to? Again, I'm going to ask you some hard questions, but there are questions that I turn on myself and am embarrassed. What do we hold on to? What property or money or funds or status do we hold on to? What do we pursue? The choices that you make in your life, what are you pursuing? Or, or who or what do you follow? This, this is cutting. I understand that. This is who we are, though. We are to be denying ourselves, casting these things off, and following Jesus, pursuing him. That's who we are. We're disciples. We're blind men made well by Jesus. Would you have the marks of a true disciple that Mark could write about you in one sense that you are a disciple, that you follow him? The decisions you make are to pursue him and love him and deny yourself. We are, and Stacy's hit on this, we are filthy rich. If you're sitting here in this auditorium, you are filthy rich. You understand. You may not think so, but none of us have only had to leave a cloak behind. No one. This is a very difficult call. Nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. But let me remind you of our Lord's words. To the, stum the stumbling disciples, with man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Repent. Believe the gospel and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We don't pretend to be anything great. And sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we are one of the greatest of these. But God, may you reveal to us the truth, the truth that we are blind beggars and we are in need of you. May we respond like Bartimaeus and be disciples of you, loving and knowing and trusting you and following you to the end, to death. Yes, we're that crazy because you were crazy enough to give us life. And you're not crazy. You have thought through this and you, for your sovereign plan, have meant from the beginning of time for Jesus to die so that you might be able to ransom a people for yourself and bring yourself ultimate glory. You are the great king. There's no one like you. We worship you today. Even in our confession, God, we worship you because we recognize that we can't do this. May you give us hearts of repentance and faith to believe. Lord, change my heart. Change my wicked heart that loves myself and my comfort. 
Help me to see Jesus for the sweetest gift that I have ever had and I ever will have to the world and hold tightly, giving up all that I might follow you. I pray that for us as a group, as us, as your church, that we would do that in Jesus' name.